This is the Aurelius Podcast, episode 47 with Albal Villamil. I'm Zach Naylor, co-founder at Aurelius and your host for the Aurelius Podcast, where we discuss all things UX, research, and product. In this episode, we have Alba Villamil, our user researcher in the social sector and facilitator at Humanity Centered. Alba's work is focused on improving service delivery to underserved communities. She also works with other UX professionals to consider how the ethical principles that guide their work may be doing more harm than good. With that, you can imagine we talked quite a bit about ethics in UX design and research. Alba not only shared a definition of what ethics in our profession is, but also what sort of questions we can ask ourselves and our teams to consider the impact we have to the society and communities we design for and research with. Alba is so thoughtful and has clear expertise and background on these topics through her work, so I know you'll have a lot to take away from our chat. The Aurelius Podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the powerful research repository and insights platform. Aurelius is an all-in-one space for researchers to organize notes, capture insights, analyze data, and share outcomes with your team. We recently announced two of our biggest features at YET. Aurelius now offers transcriptions and our automatic report builder. You can add any audio or video recording and have notes created for you automatically. Then, Aurelius automatically creates a report with every key insight and recommendation from your project, which you can then edit, design, and share with anyone right from Aurelius. Check us out at AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. Okay, let's get to it. Hey, Alba. Hey, Zach. How are you? Not too bad. Things are looking up. <laughs> I think we're recording this episode. So for folks who listen, we're recording it fresh into the year 2021. So far, so good. Sunny skies and, you know, some things kind of looking looking upward. How about yourself? I am just excited that it's properly winter over here in Boston. I am a Northeast girl, so I love seeing white on the ground. So it's a yeah. good start to the new year. Yeah, I agree. It was an interesting thing. I'm in Minneapolis and we didn't have any snow. I typically would have snow even before Thanksgiving. And we did actually have a big snowfall in October before Halloween, if you can believe. But then it all went away because it warmed up. We didn't think we were going to have any snow for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you know the Wednesday of that week, it just dumped on us. So it was kind of awesome. Very lucky. We yeah. were a balmy 65 over here. So unfortunately, it was a green Christmas. <laughs> super weird. Super weird, especially in Boston. Climate change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's what I mean. It's super weird and kind of sad for many reasons. But uh we can talk about the weather quite a lot, I'm sure. But before we kind of dig into things, you know, maybe introduce yourself for folks who, who aren't familiar with your work and some of the, the things that you share. Talk a little bit about, you know, who you are, what you're passionate about. Yeah. So my name is Alba Villamil. I'm an independent user researcher who works mainly in the social sector. In my particular case, that means most of my collaborators are community organizations that deliver social services to historically marginalized and vulnerable populations. And my main focus is using research to produce more equitable service delivery for those populations. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm also a facilitator at Humanity Centered, uh, which is an online course and community for design professionals. And there I teach about research and design ethics, mainly challenge community members to think about how the ethical principles that guide their work might be doing more harm than good. That's an interesting point. The last thing that you just said might be doing more harm than good. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, for me, ethics are essentially principles that guide our actions so that we can achieve a certain vision of the world. 
But when I often hear designers and researchers talk about ethics, they never actually define that vision. And what I like to think about is what are the principles that I can guide my work in so that I can actually achieve that vision? And so for me, I want to create an equitable, caring world. But certain principles that are common practices in our industry are not the best steps to take in order to achieve that vision. And I would imagine that you've run into this where sometimes they're actually in direct contrast to each other. Absolutely. Yes. I'm kind of thinking of this one project that I worked on several years ago. I was doing some consultation with a social enterprise that connected Syrian refugees to online work. One of the things that we were trying to promote in the design of the platform that we would, you know, create is inclusion, right? Like we wanted to make sure that this product could include people and was accessible to anyone regardless of the tech access that they had, regardless of their gender, religion, particular ethnic group. But what ended up happening in this particular case is that when we tried to work with corporate partners, so those were the people that would actually provide the online work for these workers, they made us fulfill certain criteria in who we brought on to the platform. You know, when we were doing some works with these corporate social responsibility managers, they were like, well, where did you find these folks? What type of documentation do they have? And essentially, they were trying to ask, are these people terrorists? But in a way that was very polite, right? Because they saw that this population were mainly Syrian. They were mainly refugees. They were brown in comparison to themselves. (laughs) And so that must mean that they are terrorists. And so we ended up designing this very wonderfully inclusive, you know, onboarding experience and platform that essentially forced people to prove that they were not terrorists. Hmm. And so for me, this principle of inclusion is really fascinating because it doesn't actually force us to challenge why are certain groups excluded in the first place? What are the factors that led to that exclusion? That is really, really interesting perspective and kind of how that's flipped, right? It's almost like the anti-problem. It's, yes, you can work on inclusion, but without asking the question, like you say, how did we get here? Why was there exclusion? I would imagine you can't really address that problem until you start asking that, right? And getting answers to that. Absolutely. Like another one that kind of comes to mind, another not necessarily principle, but element of research that we often kind of promote in our work is the idea of rapport, right? It's something that's so incredibly foundational Mm -hmm. to our work, right? One of the first things that we are taught are what are the strategies that you can use to make a participant comfortable in an interview or an observation setting so that they feel that you are the right person that they can share their story Mm -hmm. with. But I think one of the things that we don't account for then when we are using those strategies is that a lot of these participants might interpret this interview almost in a therapeutic sense, right? Like they have this person 
who is asking these questions, personal questions that maybe they had never had asked of them before. And this person is listening very politely and kindly and is nodding their head and might even give them a hug or give them some forms of affirmation by going, hmm, or that's interesting, tell me more. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of folks, just being in that type of environment makes them share things that they probably would never have shared with anyone else. And that can feel very cathartic. But some participants might also have the reaction where they feel really de-stressed. They might even become re-traumatized because they are sharing these very deep personal issues. For us as researchers, we spend so much time developing skills to create rapport, but we are completely underqualified to handle any psychological you know, effects of that rapport. And so we can actually harm people in that creation of that very close, intimate relationship during an interview session. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, really great point to bring up. And I can't imagine it's something that crossed everybody's mind. I have to back up because we've actually covered a lot of ground in only two of those instances that you've gave, <laughs> right? So, and I want to address both. The first one is in that situation, the project you had with a lot of folks who happen to be Syrian. And then there was this idea of inclusion, but essentially building an onboarding process to say, are you a terrorist? Which can be pretty insensitive, particularly to those who are not terrorists, right? I got to ask you, what did you do in that situation? And what sort of things would you might talk to in somebody who was in a similar situation to, to address that and work on that? I didn't do anything in that case. I have to admit, it was one of my first projects. It was one of my first clients. I was really excited about the mission mm -hmm. of the organization. And I didn't have any power to say otherwise. And I sure. think something that a lot of people don't understand when, if they haven't done work in the social sector, is that so much of the impact that we can have is linked to funding criteria. So in the case of this organization, we had to rely on these, you know, corporate social responsibility departments to provide funding as well as the jobs for our, you know, workers, mm -hmm. we had to go along with the stipulations that they made. And I think this is something that even if you are not working with a social enterprise, you're working with a nonprofit, you're working with a community organization, your funders or whoever is paying the bills are really the people who are going to be defining who is eligible for the services, what kind of services are offered, and how they are administered. Mm -hmm. And if you don't accept those conditions, where are you in that yeah. case? And I think, you know, just like in general, you will often see, for example, nonprofits or social enterprises will, you know, reject clients that might actually be normally consistent with their mission because of the funders. They might select mm. clients that thought to have the most potential mm -hmm. to actually produce the outcome that those funders are interested in moving. And so there's all of these other factors that we can go into, but like that is in the weeds there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I actually think it's pretty relevant, especially in kind of a recurring theme on our show too, and, and things that we talk about it's something I'm personally also very passionate about, which is I think designers and researchers need to be better at understanding businesses and how they work and operate. Mm -hmm. And you just described that. It's with nonprofits and social sector. But the thing is, 
kind of the punchline of the joke is follow the money. And that's where you'll find the truth of, you know, the goals and intentions and, uh, and mission in some cases of regardless of the organization type, that's where you're going to get your answers of what you're really working to. Yeah. But I think what's unfortunate is that a lot of people enter this space, right? Like they want to use design to create social good. They want to create social impact and you can absolutely do that in this space, but you know, again, because of the funding structure, it's probably going to be short-term, time-limited, heavily specialized. You're only going to be looking at metrics of efficiency and headcount rather than the actual outcomes in these people's lives. Mm -hmm. And that can be, I think, psychologically really draining for a lot of researchers and designers doing this work. And so something that I always say is like, one of the things that you need before you enter this field is a good therapist. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this you take on a lot that you, I think you don't expect. And you mentioned a, a couple situations that I've, actually, I've had happen to me in research sessions where people would outright say, wow, I've never actually told anybody this before. And I'm essentially a complete stranger to them. And that's a, it's an interesting position to be put in, right? I actually recall one project in particular, I was talking with folks a lot about their personal health and some of their goals and aspirations around that. And they were sharing things with me that I just never expected that actually really affected me. And it makes you want to do so much more and it makes you feel responsible for having a much bigger impact. And sometimes you don't have the ability to have, you know, and so that can be really difficult. With the example of that project in the, the one that we were just describing, is there anything that you would have done differently? You know, despite the fact that maybe you didn't have the power and you didn't have the voice and legs to stand on to make some of those calls. I think something that I have been trying to integrate more deliberately in my work is being transparent with participants and your end users about the position you're in as a researcher <laughs> in your organization. Yeah. And I don't necessarily mean that in the way of, hey, I'm, I'm doing this, but like my hands are tied behind my back. I don't really have responsibility. It's more about making sure that when these folks are getting involved with this design process, that they are completely aware of the limitations of what you can do, what you mm -hmm. can promise, and what are the conditions that are going to meet them the end of this process. I think for us, we tend to think about consent, for example, as something that participants give at the beginning of a project. And then that form is kind of tucked away in our organizations. But really, we should be thinking about consent as something that participants should actively refuse unless they see real value in what you're providing them. And so that transparency is really to try to get them to understand, this is all that I can provide for you. Do you still feel comfortable with me obtaining your stories and trying to build something with it, even if it may not amount to anything? Mm -hmm. And a lot of participants have never been asked that, especially yeah. if they come from marginalized communities that are over-researched and never see the fruits of the labor that they put in to a research project. Really excellent points. Yeah, consent is, oh my gosh, one of the things that I wish we were more deliberate about in our field. And thankfully, there are some folks in like the reops community who are trying to think about how can we design consent processes and products, allow some flexibility for participants, right? Can they, you know, choose the elements of their story that researchers ask about to begin with? Can they 
take away data once it's already put into the database that the researcher has created if you know the participant changes their mind about what they want to share can they put time limits on the use of that data so it's really exciting i think to see how technologists are approaching it but even outside of that i think we as researchers really need to be more mindful of what we're asking people to engage in when they start a research project with us sure no i have to imagine that a lot of this directly funnels into the work you're doing then with Humanity Centered. Absolutely. I mean, so my whole module on ethics is really centered around the idea of refusal. I have been really fascinated with a lot of literature on like decolonization and this idea of marginalized communities refusing to participate in someone else's ideas of their own communities, right? It's about ownership of one's ideas as well as ownership over one's portrayal. Mm -hmm. And when I was thinking of refusal, I was like, but we can really actually expand that idea beyond just consent. We can think about what are all of the principles that we can refuse in our work, all the apparent goods in our industry that really are, again, harmful to the people that we're working with. Yeah, for sure. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I talked a little bit about rapport at the beginning, right? So refusing that idea. Another one that I <laughs> refuse is the idea of doing no harm. Mm-hmm. We often, you know, if you look at a lot of value statements or ethical principles that researchers list, usually do no harm is the first one. Right. And in of itself, do no harm is important, but it doesn't actually address the power asymmetry between the participant and the researcher. So if I ask someone to participate in an interview and I'm making sure that the conditions of this interview will not harm that person, that participant is not actually benefiting from this. I'm the one who gets their story. Mm -hmm. Even if I compensate that person monetarily or with a gift card, I'm still the one who, once I get their story, I will be the one who gets promoted if the design meets certain metrics. I'm the one who will get public recognition for the design, you know, with the industry, the participant doesn't necessarily see anything unless that design actually changes their outcome. Mm -hmm. So something that I have been really thinking about is, okay, let's refuse the idea of do no harm and instead orient our work towards care, right? How can we make this interaction between researcher and participant mutually beneficial for both parties, right? How can we make sure that we recognize our ability to harm, that we empower them and build trust, and that we actually provide true value? And there's all of these different behaviors that we can engage in as researchers to do that. Yeah, this is pretty deep stuff. I like this a lot. Can you give an example of that? Like what are steps we can take? <laughs> Assuming folks are listening to this and go, well, yeah, I care about that. What can I do to start practicing it? Yeah. So, you know, when we 
say do no harm. Really, usually what we do is like, okay, I'm not going to engage in anything that's obviously dangerous, right? Like I will not conduct a research session, assuming we go back to in-person research <laughs> anytime soon. I will not conduct this study in an area that is dangerous or in an area that it takes a very long time for this participant to travel to. So it's very expensive and time intensive for that person to get there, right? Because harm could also be like economic harm, sure. wasting someone's time, the opportunity cost of getting there. But if we were to make this research session centered around care, we would really try to think about, okay, how can we change the elements of this environment to make sure that this person feels grounded, that this person doesn't feel like they have no autonomy in this situation? So... I used to sometimes bring in with me these like little devices or little objects that you can like squeeze. So if someone gets nervous, they can just like mm-hmm. start squeezing these mm-hmm. like, what are they called? Medicine balls or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Stress balls. Stress balls. Exactly. Yeah. You know, can you have that? Do you provide food there? If someone is a parent, do you provide babysitting so that the person can actually bring the child to the location? and doesn't have to worry about the child. Do you actually have toys for the child there? So in case there's no babysitter, you actually integrate that child's into the session, Mm -hmm. right? Those are just like physical things that we can do to the environment. Or even just like the types of chairs that you use. Are you using chairs that only fit a certain type of body type? Or do you have variety of options so that someone, if they have a disability, they will feel comfortable? Yeah. Because they have a choice there. Yeah. So this is little things like that. <laughs> this is this is awesome. I don't think those are little things at all. I mean, this is awesome. It sounds like extremely thorough in the way that you're thinking about this and talking about it and sharing. Uh, this is really, really valuable stuff, I have to believe, for pretty much everybody listening. You know, one of the things that you said earlier about <laughs> ethics and inclusion and stuff like that is particularly, and I, I keep coming back to that first project that you shared because it's just a lot there in what little bit you did share there's a lot to still unpack there right because you kind of say like they were essentially asking if you were a terrorist but in a really polite way and that's how a lot of this stuff happens it doesn't on the surface it doesn't look like exclusion or it doesn't look like lack of interest in diversity right it all seems very polite but i think in many cases people don't realize that that's the case absolutely i'm I mean, this is a larger problem in society and how we use language to hide violence. You know, yeah, like our designs can be violent. Questions can be weapons. Um, You know, what you decide to put on a form and the language that you use can be incredibly harmful, even if the participant doesn't necessarily realize it because they belong to the same cultural systems as you do. So they probably subscribe to the same ideas. I mean, when we were, you know, interacting with uh, workers and we were doing usability testing on, you know, our onboarding forms and the platform, I felt really uncomfortable as a researcher asking them to go through certain tasks. But ultimately, my participants were desperate enough because of their current socioeconomic conditions. And, mm-hmm. you know, fra- their frame of mind is this is something that will help me feed my family. Yeah. For a, I don't care if you essentially put my name in a database 
make me go through all of these different surveillance processes because ultimately this is a way for me to get $2 and that will help feed my family mm-hmm. for half a week. Yeah. And it, that again, it goes back to the power imbalance between your participants and you as the researcher. And that's something that we can never get rid of, unfortunately, especially if we're doing work in this space. And so it's what we decide to do with that power, I think is the question. And what what are we trying to kind of challenge? Yeah. Uh, I can now I have more of an awareness of, oh, okay, so this is the way that this project is going to be funded. So I already know, okay, like you are trying to target these funders, they're going to have certain stipulations. Yeah. I'm not going to work on this project. Yeah. I'm in a financially secure position that I can reject those types of projects. Sure. Yeah, you have the experience to to recognize that stuff. I mean, experience uh, cures a lot of ails, doesn't it? You know, I have to say, very wisely put on your part where the one thing you said, that power dynamic will never go away, but how you choose to act on that is really what affects the outcome. I think that's those are very, very wise words. A lot of this will come with experience. I'm curious, you know, is it simply enough for people to say, I need to just speak up about this. I see, I see an issue here ethically or otherwise. You know, is, is that enough or should people be doing more in those kind of situations? I don't feel comfortable prescribing what people should do because I think there's two elements that really, well, at least two, there's more, uh, <laughs> that, that I really, there's kind of like two main things that I think you have to consider as a designer. I think the first thing is to figure out what is kind of the ethical orientation of your organization. And then the second is what is the ethical infrastructure of your Mm. organization. And I guess the third one is your position. You know, I'm a woman, I'm a person of color. Mm -hmm. I have certain privileges, but I also lack certain power because of my identity and my positionality. So those three things we have to negotiate. So when I say ethical orientation, you know, certain orgs, uh, because they are more mature, they've been around for longer, they are either oriented towards just their business goals. Mm -hmm. They're oriented towards participants or they're oriented towards the larger community. I think the more mature an organization is, the more likely they will be oriented towards participants and communities because they are large enough that bad press is actually something that can hurt the business. Mm -hmm. A lot of the kind of ethical changes that big companies like Google have engaged in is because they got bad press. And now some of their changes were not necessarily substantial or they were more performative than actual, than actually did really change things, but they respond to the public. A startup who is just considered, you know, just concerned about growing, they're going to be just oriented towards the organization. So their sense of ethics is going to be about maybe compliance. Mm-hmm. And like the law, but other than that, like there's really no incentive for them to do anything more than that. And then when I say the ethical infrastructure of an organization, again, this kind of ties into the maturity of the organization, but the older an organization is, the more likely they have dedicated roles and processes related to ethics. Um, So large companies have chief ethics officers, for example. Other companies they might have at like the managerial level, these processes where you can anonymously submit 
ideas of, you know, I don't want to do this or like we cannot do this. We need to check in on that. And so they already have that process of engaging in criticism or internal criticism and trying to figure out solutions to address those. So as a designer, you need to think, how do those two things match up in your particular situation? And then given your positionality, the amount of power you have, the type of people you have in your network, how can you take advantage of that infrastructure and that orientation to create change? Yeah, that's awesome. It's clear you've given a lot of thought to this. And I definitely appreciate why you say you're hesitant to prescribe given that explanation. Cause I think that that works really well and can apply to anyone. Right. And it's, it's flexible enough for you to say, as you kind of mentioned earlier, make the choice with the power that you have. <laughs> right. And then, and this prescriptive, I think it's useful for introspection. Like, it, you know, what you just described, it allows people to not only take a look at, well, what's this company I'm involved with or potentially going to be involved with uh, what's their, their position and ability to act on this stuff, but then what's my own sort of compass, right? Yeah. And I think too, people underestimate, you don't necessarily have to try to make ethical change just through your company. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of the things that I have been engaging in this, you know, past year is how can I help the communities that I work with hold designers to a higher standard. So rather than try to convince my stakeholders to engage in more ethical research, I help communities understand that they have rights and mm-hmm. that they do have power, mm-hmm. even if they don't have the institutional power of my stakeholders. We as researchers rely on data. If we cannot collect data, our asses are going to be handed, to yeah. us, right? So I have to convince you as a participant to work with me. If I can encourage participants to ask researchers, for example, what is this data going to be used for? Who is going to be accessing it? How long is it going to last in your data repository? And what are you going to do if the outcomes of this design have negative externalities? Having people understand that they can ask those questions Mm -hmm. is really powerful. So I designed with like another researcher this workshop to essentially help immigrants who in this particular location have been over-researched by various institutions and organizations to just basically say no or no, unless you address these demands that we have. Yeah. So you can do it in that sense. You can also you know, go the lobbying route. You can go into politics. You can actually try to change tech policy mm-hmm. at different levels. And this kind of reminds me a lot of this activist by the name of Sarah T. Hamid. And one of the things that I really appreciate about her is that she is an abolitionist, someone who really is trying to stop the use of surveillance technologies in um, Black and Brown communities. Now, for her, she obviously is very suspicious of internal activists, right? Like, so employees within companies to try to create change from the inside. She's very suspicious of them because it's very hard to engage in that change making from the inside. But she also acknowledges the fact while they are trying to create change on the inside, that slows the company down, which gives her time as an activist on the ground Mm -hmm. and on the outside 
to engage in the change making that she wants to do. So I think something that I really love about her approach is like, try to make change from where you are. Because all of these things, as long as we have this collective goal, will help move the needle. And we do need people on the inside. We need people on the outside. We need people in the legislature. And we need people in communities. Yeah. Start where you are. Start with what you know. Start with your skill set. Don't try to jump into something that you are completely unprepared to engage in because of your positionality and your identity. I love it. It reminds me of a saying that can apply to many things in life. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. That's that's really great. I'm curious. Again, you've clearly given a lot of thought to this and uh, and you have a ton of background in it, particularly with Humanity Centered. I'm curious, right? Because the work you're doing there. What would you love to see, let's say a year from now, three years from now, where you can say, you know what, we're having an impact, we're doing the things we want to, we're accomplishing and giving back in the way that we want to? Honestly, at this point, because of the way that a lot of corporate America works, I just want people to be talking about these things. I think people lack the language to discuss issues of inclusion and equity and humanity, as abstract as that concept is. Giving someone a feeling of empowerment so that they can take these concepts to their personal life or apply them to their personal life and then take them to their teams and talk to their employers about that. I would just love to see that because one of the things that we heard a lot from our members in the first cohort is just, there's not even an opportunity for me to say these things in my work. Yeah. And so the idea is, is that if we can have more employees that are exposed to these ideas, having that group of people is comforting. It gives an opportunity for dissent and complex conversations to emerge. But that's just a numbers game. Like Mm -hmm. one person coming to this course, that's very difficult for them again to make that change unless they are at a, you know, managerial or senior level within their teams. So yeah, it's just having more people talking about it so that there's more of a carved out space in our workplaces to be discussing these topics is what I would like to see in the next couple of years. Nice. Awesome. I think that that's really true and definitely ties back to something else that you said that I couldn't agree more with, which is collections of people have a lot more power than they realize because all of us, right? It doesn't matter if you're just a community member, if you're somebody in a position like ours, professionally and research and UX, right? We think of ourselves because we have to take care of ourselves first. And so then we also think of the impact just ourselves can have, a single person. Uh, but the reality is, you know, you're, you're, you're very right where the collective is uh, much stronger than the whole. And there are no superheroes, right? Like the whole do what you can with what you have, where you are. We shouldn't hope that anybody, any one single person or believe that any one single person is going to have that impact. We all have got to do the work. Yeah, and I think that this is a very perverse uh, idea that Silicon Valley has promoted for its own benefit, right? Like we have this idea of the maverick designer who was able to, you know, create this product like Apple and Steve Jobs, right? Like he's brilliant. He's this, he's that. He can change the world just one man at a time. And I think having that language inscribed and just like, pervading every single part of our work as designers and technologists have really kind of blinded us to the idea that it's in the collective that things 
change. Now, this doesn't mean that you as an individual cannot create change, but I think tech has really isolated us in many ways. And I think the part that it's most damaging to creating social change within our organizations and outside of it is this idea that you as the lone person are going to be, you know, creating social change rather than you as the lone person can join another lone person, create a collective, and then create social change. Totally. It's pretty arrogant to have that idea to begin with. But interestingly, if we kind of expand that even just within companies, I think it's short-sighted to say just UX or design or product has Mm -hmm. the power to change that. That's not true because everybody in your product org can be on the same page. But if the rest of the business is not inclined to do so because there isn't, as you mentioned, inside and or outside pressure or, you know, even incentive in some cases to do so, that's not going to work. So, you know, nobody, no single person, and I don't think any one single group is uh, the hero of that. Yeah, you're right. It's a perverse notion. I think we like that because we like the idea of being able to become that in some ways, right? We would all love that, but it's simply not true. And I think that the sooner we come to terms with, let's all start doing the work together, that's when things can really, really move forward. Yes, something, I, I mean, I try not to engage too much on design Twitter because it's just not like <laughs> my mental health. But one of the things that really upset me a couple of years ago was there was this incident where a designer had just been hired, I think, by Facebook. And at the time, Facebook was undergoing a lot of criticism, rightfully so, because of things that they had been engaged in. And everyone piled on that designer for celebrating their new job. And it was a woman of color. And to me, I was like, you're directing the attention at the wrong person. Mm. And because the conversation started shifting to, oh, well, because of design ethics, like you as the designer, you as the researcher have the ability to leave your work if you are engaged in, you know, unethical design. But no one was defining unethical design. No one was defining or (laughs) exploring why is it that this company that has existed for many years is now only getting criticized and this one designer in this huge organization rather than the generation of design leaders that came before that person who probably should have made stronger statements about issues of accessibility and inclusion and politics is getting blamed, Mm -hmm. that one person. So to me, it's just not a productive conversation to kind of talk about ethics in such an individualistic way. And so something that I always try to encourage people to think about is, what is the organization doing? Mm -hmm. Forget the individual. What is the orientation of that organization? What is the infrastructure of that organization? And start there. What can we do to create change there? Yeah, great points. You know, in the interest of giving credit where it's due, everything has to start somewhere. But you're totally right. Like to just to single one person out is, again, I would use the word short-sighted. Yeah, and I definitely think it was racialized as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't think it's an accident that, oh, it's like one person, the way that she looks, her race, of her gender, as opposed to all of the other bros, Mm -hmm. the design bros who are in Mm -hmm. the fields who are working at Facebook. Totally. You know. (laughs) I realize that we're coming up towards the end of our chat and I need to be respectful of your time. One of the things I typically ask towards the end of the shows is if I forgot everything we talked about and somebody came up to you and said, Hey, how did that go? What, what did you chat about? And 
know, what's the thing that you would want everybody to remember from the conversation we had? Want everyone to recognize that even though social change happens in collectives, the one thing that you can do as an individual is to begin to refuse what is presented in front of you. So if there are certain principles, certain tools, certain frameworks that are stated as a given, actually investigate how those things can cause harm and refuse them and try to formulate alternatives that can allow you to achieve the vision of the world that you want to create. All about refusal. Awesome. I really appreciate the answer. In particular, the one thing that you said around refusal of this, then presenting alternatives. I think that that's so key. You know, so many people want to get angry or want to push back against something, but don't consider what happens next. (laughs) We can all say, we don't like this. We don't want that, or this is bad, but you got to work to say, here's what it should be replaced with, or here's how it can be different. I think that's so critical. Is there anything that you want to share with folks that we didn't talk about today? You can share with them now. Well, I definitely think if people are looking for alternatives on how to kind of elevate humanity in their personal life and in their workplaces and the design work that they engage in, checking out Humanity Centered, I think, is one option. Personally, I'm also working on organizing a couple of events around race and user research. So how can we kind of come up with alternative research methods to make sure that the designs we create are not racist? So I'm giving a talk at a UXRC in February on what I call colorblind racism, how our processes ignore the presence of race and racism. And I'm also organizing a panel with just like some fantastic researchers on January 29th. And they will be talking about the way that their race influences their approach to user research. And you can find all of that information on my Twitter page or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Okay. Well, and we'll make sure to have links in the show notes for some of those things that you discussed too. So, you know, for folks listening, if you want to check that out, if you're coming to listen on our actual page, you know, just scroll down, you'll have links to that stuff and uh, you can check out more of the work that uh, Alba and her team are doing, particularly Humanity Senator and some of those talks that you're mentioning. Fantastic. Yeah. Please check them out. They're going to be awesome. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. I am certain folks have a lot to chew on from the chat that we have here and things to consider. And I know I could personally talk more about this with you for uh, probably a couple more hours, but uh, I need to be respectful of your time. I just want to say thanks again. I appreciate you joining me. And thank you for having me. There's always, you know, season four or five. That <laughs> That's right. Conversation. That's right. <laughs> we have, we actually have had repeat guests too. I mean, we're, we're, our show's been around long enough now. So awesome. If you're up for it, I mean, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you let me know, Zach. You let me know. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius the research and insights tool that helps you analyze, search, and share all your research in one place. So you can go from data to insights to action faster and easier. Check out Aurelius for yourself with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you would give us a review on iTunes to let others know what you think. You can catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for email updates on our website.